Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. Picture this. You're four or five years old, and you're getting up for school. You rushed and got ready in record time. Your parents have finally let you start dressing yourselves, and you put together a questionable at best outfit, but you're dressed nonetheless. You rush downstairs and plop yourself down right in front of the television so that you can catch just a little bit of your favorite preschool TV show before you head off to school. Think about what that show was for you. Maybe you were a Nick Jr. kid, so you were frequenting the Jory the Explorers or Blue's Clues of the world. Or perhaps you were a Playhouse Disney or Disney Jr. for the younger listeners out there kid and you were a fan of shows like PB&J Otter or a little out of the box out of the box. I had to, I'm sorry. Or you probably headed on down to a little street called Sesame to hang out with your favorite furry friends. No matter the station, no matter the show, we can all recall those foundational shows that we loved and learned from when we were small. The brilliance of those shows were their ability to be able to infuse research and create curriculum for these shows that millions of children around the world would see. If you were to ask me, and you technically are because you're listening to my podcast, but if you were to ask me, children's educational programming not only readies kids for school through teaching them their ABCs and 123s, but they are also pretty paramount in teaching children the basics of intangible skills, like dealing with their emotions or even things like media literacy. For the next few weeks, we're going to be taking a deep dive into how some of our favorite preschool shows came to be and take a little peek into the science that goes into creating them. So grab a snack, get a juice box, and sit crisscross applesauce because we're going back to preschool. So if that sounds good to you, let's get started. So our journey begins with perhaps the most famous examples of children's educational programming with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and Sesame Street premiering in 1968 and 1969 respectively. Allow me to set the scene for you of what programming looked like on television around this time. Consider the 50s and 60s as the infancy and teenage years of television. Consider the 50s and 60s as the infancy and childhood years of television. The medium was relatively new still, and that means that many formats that feel normal and commonplace to us now, like the sitcom, were burgeoning into the media landscape for the very first time. This also means that programming was not as robust in development and production, and much of television was treated almost exclusively as a means of advertising. It still is, but even more so back then. Like with company sponsor programming, for example. It's why soap operas are called soap operas. It's because the programming was sponsored slash presented by soap companies. You learn something new every day. For children's entertainment, the landscape was a little bit more vast than one might think at the time. You had shows like Leave it to Beaver, Tom and Jerry, Captain Kangaroo, and the Mickey Mouse Club that were all on air at a certain point. 
Television was doing a really good job of entertaining children and selling to children, but there was some really untapped potential there. The undoubted king of children's educational programming is a man that we all know. You could call him a neighbor. That's right, it's Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers is a figure of children's educational programming that we've known since kind of forever. It's felt like forever, but it's really since the late 60s. And hundreds of thousands of millions of kids have been able to interact with Mr. Rogers and learn things about their emotions and really stretch the bounds of their imagination with his shows. But Mr. Rogers was kind of in the children's media landscape space since the early 50s, which doesn't, which sounds kind of strange because Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood didn't premiere until 1968, like I mentioned. However, the first instance, or perhaps prototype, of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood premiered in 1953 on a show called The Children's Corner. The Children's Corner was kind of birthed out of Fred Rogers, who had just begun his television career at NBC, and he was also within the founding organization of America's first community-supported television station, which was WQED out of Pittsburgh. And he was the program director, and he was in charge of scheduling. And he was tasked with scheduling a children's program. And so he reached out far and wide to see who could produce this such a program. And when no one did it, he decided to step up himself and do it. So Rogers decided to step up, and it was in April of 1954 that The Children's Corner was released. So he did this in collaboration with one of the hosts of the show, which was or the host of the show, which was Josie Carey. And both of them would write the scripts and they would do the music. And kids really, really loved it. So much so that in 1955, they won a Sylvania Award for the best locally produced children's program in the country. The Children's Corner is, like I said, it's very uh, much kind of a prototype of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood in that it involved uh, puppets. And this was where we get our first instance of King Friday and Daniel Tiger and X the Owl. So these characters showed up first in the Children's Corner and then were carried over to his other programs. So in the early 60s, Rogers had moved to Toronto, Ontario, Canada, or Toronto, um, and he had a new series that was based off of Children's Corner, and it was called Mr. Rogers, um, which was all one word. And it was only 15 minutes, and it was on CBC television. Again, a similar vein of of the Children's Corner, which involved the puppets. It involved, um, you know, Mr. Rogers talking to kids directly, you know, kind of validating their feelings, teaching them about their emotions, stretching the bounds of their imagination, everything, all like that. And then finally, in 1966, he got the rights to his program, Mr. Rogers, that was playing on CBC in Canada, and he brought it back to the U.S., back to QED, or WQED in Pittsburgh. And this is where we get, da-da-da, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And this was the iteration of the show that we're perhaps all you know, the most familiar with. So the show ran from February 19th, 1968, all the way to August 31st, 2001. And the final episode was taped on December 1st, 2000. But it wasn't released until 2001. And this show is something that is truly so special to me. And I think it's special to 
really everyone. But this is not necessarily a show that he set out with a strict curriculum of this is what we're going to talk about. And, you know, these are the different like um, kind of benchmarks that we want to hit. Like it was the first show that I think touched on the point that I talked about in the intro, which was teaching kids intangible skills like their emotions about using their imagination like these things that are definitely baked into every i would say um children's educational programming you know series worth its weight uh they teach those things but it really kind of got started with with mr rogers so a core tenant of his programming and a lot of his approach to how he would do things on his shows is to treat children like adults and that treating their emotions as real and valid and teaching them how to handle those things which seems like commonplace but it's very often that like a child's emotions can be like you know waved off as oh you're just being dramatic or that's not really happening because they are you know they're itty bitty and they're just now getting to understand the world around them but Mr. Rogers really wanted to hone in on the fact that children's emotions are very valid and the best way to handle them is to handle them and not to avoid them. So like I said, Mr. Rogers didn't stick to like the strictest of, of curriculums and, you know, had all of this research baked into how the show would would function. That wouldn't come into another show that was in production around the same time, which is, of course, Sesame Street. I've talked about Sesame Street a ton on this show in a thousand and one capacities and we're going to do a thousand and two this week but Sesame Street as you guys know um just to give a a brief wraparound for anyone who is uh needing a little bit of a refresher on on Sesame Street the show kind of began towards the end of the the late 60s when there was a lot of social unrest and there was a lot of things happening within the country and I think a lot of people were beginning to think okay we have a lot of social unrest we have a lot of just social issues that are happening right now we have this kind of emerging art form, media form, and television. And there's a potential here to use television to help reach some people who may be direct, directly impacted by these social changes that are happening. And so that's essentially kind of how Sesame Street, how it came to be. So in the late 60s, a woman by the name of Joan Gans Cooney she saw that there was um, there was potential for television to teach kids just as much as it entertained them or sold things to them. So she produced a preschool program out of Harlem, and it kind of led her to understanding the things that were happening within the civil rights movement. She was dealing directly with Black children, and she was seeing that there was a really large deficit between how ready black children were for school in opposition to their white counterparts. And so she then collaborated with a longtime friend of hers by a man by the name of Lloyd Morissette, who was, he was a psychologist and a Carnegie Corporation executive. So the two collaborated together and created the production company that would then go on to produce Sesame Street, aka Children's Television Network, which is still around today. Um, And they would go on to create Sesame Street. A key player in this also is a man by the name of John Stone who served as the director and writer on a lot of early Sesame Street episodes. So you have the three of them and then they bring in this young upstart named Jim Henson and his new Muppet creations that are taking the late night world by storm. 
because if you don't know, the Muppets kind of began in the more adult space. They would be seen largely on programming like The Tonight Show and everything like that. But as I mentioned with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, puppets were a really big thing for children's programming. I mean, children love puppets, so it makes sense. But they saw how different these versions of puppets were with Henson's Muppets. And so he's like, okay, let's bring that in. I think there's something here. So you have Joan Gans Cooney, you have Lloyd Morissette, you have John Stone, you have Jim Henson, you have a man by the name of Joe Raposo who comes in and does a lot of the music for Sesame Street. Uh, he was the the mind behind uh, songs like It Ain't Easy Being Green and C is for Cookie. So all of these things, all these people are kind of conspiring together to create this really, really amazing show. On top of that, you also have a team of mainly black women who are the masterminds behind the curriculum of Sesame Street, because Sesame Street was one of the one of the first and one of the most prominent examples of the melding of curriculum and of production, pretty much. So uh, this is a quote from a Smithsonian Magazine article on the kind of hidden roots, black roots of Sesame Street, saying, quote, quote, a January 1970 Ebony profile of Sesame Street included a photo of Cooney flanked by a team of African-American women, including the head of Seattle Head Start and the headmistress of a New York preschool. Chester Pierce, an African-American psychiatrist and Harvard professor, helped design what he called the show's hidden curriculum to build up the self-worth of black children through the presentation of positive black images. Pierce also insists that the show present an integrated, harmonious community to challenge the marginalization of African-Americans that children routinely saw on television and elsewhere in society. A lot of things were happening at once, kind of behind the scenes with Sesame Street. They were creating a curriculum based on research. So they would go and they would talk to children. They would ask them what holds your attention. They would show them things and um, they would show them segments that involved, you know, children with the Muppets. They would show them segments that just involved the Muppets. They would show them segments that just involved children to see what would resonate and what was holding their attention. So you have that working. You have the physical production of the show, which is how do we make a show with Muppets and puppet characters? And children, human children and human adults, all kind of able to live, who are able to live in this in this community for the show. So you have all of these different pieces working together and they somehow pulled it off. Like Sesame Street really, really was a feat. And at the time, it seems so commonplace now. And obviously you would obviously have a show like Sesame Street. But there was a lot of contention when it premiered in the late 60s, early 70s. So obviously... Like I mentioned, a ton of social unrest. And even though things were beginning to be integrated by law, there was still an incredible line of demarcation, if you will, um, between certain groups. Like it was things were still massively segregated. And when Sesame Street was shown in the South, there was actually a large push to have it banned because it decided to show um a racially diverse cast. It decided to show black children. Um, so much so that in 1970, the state of Mississippi banned the series uh, for having a racially diverse cast, which eventually that ban was lifted, but it still happened. So like Sesame Street, we don't think of it as this 
political show, but it kind of was at the time. So it's this massive feat of production. It's this massive feat of research and children's television workshop has definitely been kind of on the cutting edge of and one of the largest providers of a lot of research around children's programming and how kids watch TV, certain patterns associated with it. And ultimately providing a lot of research to help more people create more shows that will resonate with children and help to to teach them things. I obviously, as I've mentioned many times on on the show, um, in certain capacities, um, I think Sesame Street is probably the most important show in the history of television. I mean, mostly everyone under the sun, not just in the U.S., even though this episode is mostly talking about, you know, U.S. shows. Um Mostly everyone under the sun, like on the planet, has grown up with Sesame Street to a certain degree, and they've learned a thing or two from the show. And I think the show has an obligation and a duty to advocate for its audience, and it's done that since the beginning. So we talked about two shows from the late 60s that have run basically for the most of most people on this planet Earth right now's life. Um, so now we take a little bit of a jump to the 90s. The 90s was a really good time for children's programming China as a whole. By this time, we had dedicated networks just to children's programming, which was kind of insane to think of when we're talking about what television was in the 50s and 60s. Like having a dedicated channel that only played content for kids was a relatively new advent because most shows intended for kids would like play in a certain block on a dedicated channel like an ABC, an NBC, a Fox, etc. But by the 90s, we had dedicated networks like Nickelodeon. And with that, Nickelodeon was really kind of, I would say, a, a big leader in children's programming and just like programming intended for kids. If you were a child of the 90s, you definitely know Nickelodeon took the like buy kids for kids approach, right? And so with that, they had the main network that played, you know, like Doug and Hey Arnold and Rugrats and shows like that. But they then began to branch into preschool programming with Nick Jr., so within Nick Jr., you have shows like Dora the Explorer and a show that I love that I hold very dear to my heart, which is Blue's Clues. And Blue's Clues was kind of the impetus for this episode, if you will. Blue's Clues was one of those shows that I think we don't really understand the impact of off rip. Like it, it it's on the level of a Sesame Street to me as far as impact on the back end with production and with the curriculum of it all but it was it seems like this very simple show kind of in front of you there's a guy he has a dog named blue and they sing songs and they like you know solve a problem within the duration of the episode via these clues uh that blue leaves with her paw prints and they like have friends like mr salt and mrs pepper and um the clock and everything and they like have a song for mail time like it seems like a very 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 simple show um but the back end of it is really really interesting so we're gonna go into it obviously uh so we're jumping forward in time to around the the mid 90s 
The show about a cute little blue dog and her rotating caravan of human companions was built solely off of extensive research into how kids think. Show creators Angela Santamero, Todd Kessler, and Tracy Page Johnson partnered with child psychologists to find the best ways for kids to retain the things that they were being taught. Most preschool age shows focus heavily on rote learning, or that was how well kids could recall information given to them. Whereas the Blue's Clues team decided to focus on mastery, or how well kids could understand and apply what they were being taught. And the main way that they did this was through both repetition and audience participation. With repetition, each episode functioned like a storybook, so the camera would literally move from left to right as if you were reading a story from start to finish. And each episode followed this exact same structure so kids could get used to it. And then with audience participation or the call and response element of it, the show gave audiences enough time to solve the problem without getting bored and had kid voiceovers that gave the correct answers, which would encourage the kids watching to want to participate. And it was actually funny when I mentioned the piece about um, the repetition aspect of it. When Blue's Clues premiered, they literally would play the same episode every day for like, you know, five days or whatever it was, it would be the same episode at the same time playing for every single day. And this led to parents calling Nickelodeon and being like, hey, something's wrong with your network. You just keep playing the same episode of Blue's Clues every single day. It's not a new episode. And they had to tell parents like, hey, yeah, nothing's wrong. That's on purpose. It's so that kids could watch the episode and basically have it repeated to them every single day, these elements that they were learning within the episode. And so that's what the 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 focus of mastery versus rote, because rote would be as if they played one episode, one new episode for each day of the week. And it would just kind of be like kids would be able to take it in, but they may not be able to fully tell you what they saw. They may only be able to recall a few things, but with the approach of repeating the episode again and again and again, the elements that they're supposed to catch, like the, you know, curriculum that's baked into the episode sticks a lot more than it would if they did it the kind of traditional route. I think I told this story on a previous episode. I think, funnily enough, I think it was the Grinch episode <laughs> um, from from this past holiday season. But Blue's Clues kind of had the uh, whole, not underdog thing, uh, no pun intended, but it kind of had the approach of Nickelodeon or Nick Jr. was excited for the show. And obviously because they we're going to air it but a lot of their focus as a as a studio and as a network was going to the webulous world of dr seuss which was this puppet show that featured dr seuss characters obviously um so that was in production around the same time as blues clues and so a lot of the the network attention was going there because it was this big ip kids love dr seuss and they love the characters they're like reading the books in school so there's going to be a really like great you know crossover there and they were just super excited about it and so that kind of allowed for the blues clues team like they were still getting you know network support but they were able to kind of do their own thing a little bit and do things that were a little bit unconventional uh like i mentioned the repetition thing was definitely super unconventional for children's programming at the time and i think also their approach to music was really unconventional too 
So if you remember, Blue's Clues is the score for it is jazz. It's based in jazz. I think a lot of children's programming, um, especially for like a preschool market, likes to use the same type of sounds, which is very like wild and crazy and upbeat ah, because it's, you know, it's kids. But to kind of use jazz, which is a very, you know, mellow, very chill kind of vibe, it gives, I think it helps to further relay the very cozy atmosphere of of Blue's Clues. And it, it probably exposed a lot of kids to jazz, honestly. Like, I'm sure, like, there are some people who are like, yeah, I heard jazz for the first time on on Blue's Clues and then I just listened to it more and more and I really liked it. And I think that it, that approach is not un- uncanny. Like it's not something that wouldn't make sense for, for the time. So like I said, Blue's Clues was one of those shows that I think the impact of it, we don't readily acknowledge or like readily think of when we think of like major kids, educational programming, um, pillars like we obviously think of like Sesame Street and the like but Blue's Clues is just one of those shows that is it stuck with me so much more than I thought it would especially in my adulthood now officially in my mid-20s like it's a show that I would easily point to um and if I had kids I would definitely like show them um the old episodes of Blue's Clues but Blue's Clues is also a great example of kind of legacy media within this very specific genre of children's educational programming Um, Because there is a new iteration of Blue's Clues with Blue's Clues and You, which stars a new uh, human companion to Blue. His name is Josh. And they have brought Blue into the, uh, you know, the kind of tech laden landscape of, of television. And so like instead of a physical handy dandy notebook that Steve had in the original series, Josh has a handy dandy notebook that's essentially like an iPhone which is really cool to see because most kids, you know, want to be able to look at and identify things that they already kind of know in their, in their waking life. Um, there, they want to be able to identify things that they already see in their real life. And so having a notebook versus a phone probably is a, a switch that makes a little bit more sense. Um, but the show is really, really good. I've looked at it, um, not just for research, but also, you know, it's a good show. I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to knock the show just because I'm 24. Come on. But also they uh, just came out with a movie this past year, which was uh, Blue's Big City Adventure. And I am going to be so real with you guys. I had a blast watching that movie. I had an absolute blast watching that movie. Not only were there great songs and dance numbers, like Blue is a little dancer, let me tell you, but it was just so fun. And honestly, I don't think that it was just for kids. Like, sure, was every preschooler excited for that movie? Yeah, but it was really every preschooler and Bobby. We were excited. We were excited as a collective. And the reason why I think it wasn't just for preschoolers is the inclusion of Steve and Joe from the original series. Those scenes were so egregiously just for the probably parents now who have kids who were watching who were watching that movie or just like me with no kids and just, you know, just really loves blue. Um that's what that's what that that movie was for. It was for me and every other preschooler. So I'm never gonna knock blue. That's my girl. But um yeah, 
Blue's Clues, an amazing show and a show that I, I love quite dearly. Many of these shows that I'm going to mention have Peabody's, uh, like the Peabody Awards. Um, Sesame Street has a Peabody, pretty sure. Yeah, Mr. Rogers has a Peabody and Blue's Clues also has a Peabody Award. Um, I think I really, I think literally everyone, maybe minus one might not have a Peabody Award, uh, but Peabody's tend to honor excellence and children's educational programming so if you're a young parent and you're wondering hey what's kind of the best of the best of children's programming that's like both good and also you know it's going to teach my kid and I don't have to fear them watching you know Coco Melon for three hours or whatever it is uh check out the Peabody Awards just to see what children's programming has won because that's always a good a good marker uh, that is a, a shameless plug because I used to work at the Peabody Awards. And so I saw a lot of um, entries and entrants come in and I like more than the average person uh, of a weird database of what has won a Peabody and what has not. But yeah, always a good place to start for that. So moving on, we're all we're going to stay within the Nick Jr. landscape. So moving into the 2000s, we have another show that is, again, as similar to Blue's Clues in that it's not a like overtly like, you know, top of the heap children's educational program. But once you like remember it, you're like, oh, yeah, that really was good. And it had a little bit of a resurgence, I would say, um, on TikTok probably a year or two ago, which is The Backyardigans. Um, this was a show that I quite enjoyed. It was a little bit on the tail end of when I would have been watching it. Um, but actually, no, it was probably right around the, the time that I would have been watching it. So the series follows the adventures of Pablo, Tyrone, Uniqua, Tasha, and Austin. And they are a group of imaginative kids who go on these amazing adventures without ever leaving their backyards. Hence the name, The Backyardigans. The show premiered in 2004 and was described as a, quote, homegrown Nick Jr. property, as it was made by creators who had been with Nick Jr. for years, one of which was the creator of the series, Janice Burgess, and we have to talk about her. Burgess joined Nickelodeon in 1995 as an executive in charge of production for shows like Little Bill and Blue's Clues. However, this was not her first rodeo with preschool programming as she had worked at Sesame Workshop before coming to Nickelodeon. One of the most interesting facts about the series is that the concept for it began as a live action series called Me and My Friends. And this version featured only Pablo, Tyrone, Tasha, and Uniqua, so there was no Austin, who were friends with a trio of meerkats who were called the meerkats. And uh, this was not picked up by Nickelodeon, but it's a really popular piece of um, like lost media. If you're familiar with like the genre of media that is lost media, it's a very popular uh, phenomena. So definitely do a little bit of a deep dive into that if you're interested. So Burgess took the idea and she repitched it as an animated series. And that's how the Backyardigans as we know it was was born. So each episode of the show is kind of a romp into a different world. And for many of the episodes, the way that they explore that is through music. I think the biggest and most memorable piece of the Backyardigans is how insanely good the music is. Because <laughs> um, I think the song that was trending amongst a few of them was Castaways, which is this like kind of a bossa nova 
style song that they did for this children's show was really, really great. And also with the music, the characters dance too. So the series employed the former director of the children's program at Alvin Ailey School, Beth Bogus, who choreographed all the dances and actually got kid performers to perform them. So from there, the footage of the dances being performed would be sent to the animators and then those movements would be replicated onto the character. So if you're kind of familiar with, you know, like rotoscoping, it's kind of like that, but not directly on top, I don't think. Um, it's not like they just traced the the movements of the um of the kids that were dancing. They would just take the movements and then map it onto the characters. So so the worlds that the group was able to imagine truly had no bounds. Um, and that was all definitely by design. So Janice Burgess has stated that she was inspired by films like Die Hard and Terminator 2 for their endless adventure, uh, to want to create a world for kids that was just as boundless and fantastical. And I absolutely think she nailed it. The Backyardians, again, is one of those shows that I would absolutely show a child now, and I think they would really enjoy it. And it definitely carried over a lot of the core foundational research aspects um, from shows like Little Bill and Blue's Clues. Uh, that The research that those shows had done specifically Blue's Clues, I think many Nick Jr. shows were able to replicate success in their own ways from um, because they just really understood kids and understood how kids watch television. Um, and I think that's the dance with children's educational programming. Um, you are, kids are very much a part of the process. Like, it's not just I think a kid will like this. So let's just make a show about this. You know, like there's so much that goes into it and kids are a necessary part. And so many of these shows, um, from what I've read and from what, I, from what I've watched, so many of the people behind these shows are like, yeah, you you have to talk to kids and like get inside their heads and see like, what is it that they like? What holds their attention? What doesn't hold their attention? And sometimes it's things that you just might not think are are gonna be kind of, at the forefront of a child's mind. And so that's what goes into making these shows as good as they are. Like some of them are just like the research piece aside, a lot of these shows are just good shows, like just good, solid pieces of, of media for kids. And that's what I mean by uh, a lot of these shows building media literacy, because with a show, for example, like the Backyardigans, where they're going on all these fantastical adventures and everything within the bounds of their backyard, they're introducing kids to different like tropes and visual references to other things that they're kind of building a repertoire like in their mind of like, oh, I remember that from the Backyardigans and seeing how it applies. Uh, so like, it just makes sense that this genre of programming is kind of the first stop on your media literacy uh, adventure, I would say, like as you get older and start to watch more things. So as we wrap up, we're going to talk about one final show, which is a relatively new show, I would say, um, in that I did not watch it because I was a grown adult when it came on. But that does not stop me from watching it now. And that is Bluey. Everybody, I think, with a child under the age of five on the planet knows what Bluey is and can tell you a little bit of something about 
the show. Bluey is is everywhere. And following in the footsteps of her American cousin, Blue, from Blue's Clues, uh, Bluey is a little cute little blue dog who the show is kind of this, um, could be described as kind of a slice of life style show. Um, so for some of these shows that I've mentioned, like uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and uh, Sesame Street and blues clues they're speaking directly to kids for the most part or they have elements of the show that talk directly to children they like break the fourth wall but with shows like bluey it's almost like like a sitcom for kids pretty much like that's what the the foundation of of bluey is so if you don't know and if you haven't seen the show um especially if you were an adult um the show <laughs> the show isn't actually an australian show um and so all the characters have an australian accent because it's produced in australia um and it's i, th- I think that adds a certain funness to it especially for western audiences and especially for kids who may not have a lot of uh i'd say they who don't have a ton of familiarity with different accents and everything i think shows from different corners of the of the world being able to kind of be used in different countries and like programs that are native to one country kind of being culturally exported to others is always going to be a great time and i think this show is a really great example of that um i know that disney junior has been kind of not on the cutting edge but like they have been a really strong um proponent of bringing in and syndicating children's educational programming for disney junior from um like other countries so australia this is one um the bbc so a lot of like uk programming makes its way over to the us um as well as a lot of canadian programming because animation especially children's animation uh has a pretty rich and illustrious history uh within canada as I mentioned at the top of the episode with with Mr. with Mr. Rogers neighborhood but the the concept of bluey kind of began very not simply but kind of simply they it was a co-commission between the Australian Broadcasting Corporation or ABC and the British Broadcasting Corporation or the BBC and they co-commissioned an animated series for preschool children and it was going to be developed by uh, the Queensland production company Ludo Studio. And so they just wanted to make this show. Um, and so they received the funding and it was created by Joe Brum. And in the show is actually inspired by his raising of his own two daughters. So he has daughters that were or are around the same age as the um lead children of the series so bluey who is the namesake of the show and bingo uh which is her little sister and he has children around the same age and so a lot of people who have worked on the show have said that basically this series is kind of like (laughs) it's kind of autobiographical because it talks about um just you know like all of the characters feel very native to brum's family and he even has some of his family members in the show themselves i think his mom uh plays the grandma in the show so it's like a very homegrown production of it and so joe brum had worked on um 
children's programs in the UK as a freelance animator. And he decided to create Bluey as this kind of uh, counterpart or copy of or like replica of Peppa Pig, but just for an Australian audience. And Peppa Pig definitely has the same vibe too, uh, with the uh, whole kind of slice of life sitcom-y feel for for a preschool audience. And so there's not a, a set, um, you know, like they're going to teach ABCs or one, two, threes in this series, but it is very much taking the kind of Mr. Rogers approach of teaching intangible skills. And a lot of the show that I've seen, like, touches on even like very adult topics um so there's one episode where bluey's mom's sister so bluey's aunt comes to visit and she has been kind of hesitant to come and visit her sister and her sister's kids because she can't have kids of her own and so they explore that aspect of which is a very adult concept um, of not being able to to have your own children and um, they explore that within the realm of this show which is kind of blew my mind when I saw it for the first time and I think that's what really pulled me into the show the show also is very um perhaps most famous for showing a very positive depiction of fatherhood with Louis's dad bandit uh, and I definitely would would agree that the show does a really really great job of showing this very lovely but also very like fun family dynamic within the the bluey household so yeah the show is it does a really good job of depicting a lot of difficult concepts it does a really great job of depicting very realistic but also very positive uh versions of you know different like family dynamics so the show is like all the shows that I've mentioned is also built on research to a certain degree. And it is focusing heavily on sociodramatic play, which um, we don't tend to talk about all that often as far as the um, aspect of research. Like usually it's just like, hey, what's going to hold a child's attention? But sociodramatic play is just a focus on play as a concept. So at this time, a lot of children are like playing is not something that they're taught. They just kind of do it. And so sociodramatic play is quoted as being rooted in the child's real life experiences. And so it tends to fall into three different categories, which is family scenes. So playing house with assigned, you know, like familial roles, like the mom and the dad character scenes. So being a superhero or being a princess and functional scenes. So like playing doctor and that's what sociodramatic play is. And so a lot of episodes of Bluey is Bingo and Bluey engaging in sociodramatic play. And um, the creator, Joe Brum, has brought up that a lot of that was based off of just watching his own kids uh, play. And he said that it was just as natural he was quoted as saying that it was as natural as breathing to them um like they just kind of did it they didn't have to be taught it they didn't learn it from anywhere they just did it and there was this really imaginative aspect to it and so that's where a lot of the the stories for the different episodes come come to be but bluey i think has quickly taken over um everything like i think a lot of kids watch it and as funny as it is a lot of just as many children watch it are like depressed 20 year olds are also watching it like bluey is for them 
But Bluey is also for us. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's just one of those shows that, like, I could see myself sitting down and watching with, with like, a five-year-old, and we would both be just as engaged in it. Like, I would treat it like I am watching any other show. Like, for adults, that's how I treat watching Bluey. So... That brings us to to the end of this episode. And while I could try and wax poetic about the importance of early childhood programming, um, and I and you could probably imagine that I could do that. Um, and I think you know how how passionate I am about this subject based on just the sheer length of this episode. But I think I'm gonna let an old friend end this episode for me. You know, it happens so often. I walk down the street and someone 20 or 30 or 40 years old will come up to me and say, you are Mr. Rogers, aren't you? And then they tell me about growing up with the neighborhood and how they're passing on to the children they know what they found to be important in our television work. Like expressing their feelings through music and art and dance and sports and drama and computers and writing and and invariably we end our little time together with a hug. I'm just so proud of all of you who have grown up with us and I know how tough it is some days to look with hope and confidence on the months and years ahead. But I would like to tell you what I often told you when you were much younger. I like you just the way you are. It's such a good feeling to know that we're lifelong friends. hope you enjoyed today's episode afternooners if you don't know the afternooners is my name for all of us so if you made it to the end of this episode congratulations you're an afternooner now if you like this episode don't forget to rate and review this podcast if you had a great time and helps out the pod you get to tell me how you're feeling about the pod and i get that sweet hit of praise and validation that is my life force and keeps me going if you want to know where else to find me on the internet you can find me at the afternoon special on tiktok or over on twitter at hi i'm bobby h-i-i-m-b-o-b-b-i and if you're thinking bobby i need to go watch bluey you've convinced me i think it might be my new favorite show i need to go do that bestie i fully support that decision and trust and believe as soon as i click done on this recording i will be turning on bluey for myself so I put all that information in the description box just for you. You're welcome. I spent a little bit of time researching for this episode, as you could probably tell. And so that means I'm listening to a lot of music and listening to a lot of things while doing it. So I thought I'd share what this episode was powered by. And I actually would like to share uh, this. This week's episode is powered by segment. It's going to be a little bit different because I'd like to share some resources and things that I have learned from and listened to. Um, in preparation for this episode that I think you might find interesting to to listen to for yourself. So for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, obviously there was that movie with Tom Hanks, which I think was called Won't You Be My Neighbor? But there's also a documentary called Won't You Be My Neighbor, which is very, very good. So you can find um, Won't You Be My Neighbor streaming now on Netflix. That is where it currently is. And it goes into the uh, life and the philosophy of fred rogers and goes into a little bit of the show and the different stories behind the show it's very very good 
a tearjerker, absolutely. <laughs> and highly, highly, highly recommended. All of these come highly recommended for me, obviously, because I was listening to them. Um, for Sesame Street, there are a ton of different resources and articles and research that is done. So for all of these shows, there is a book minus Bluey because it's a little bit too, um, it's a little bit too recent from when this book came out. But a lot of what um, I've learned about children's educational programming from the research side comes from this book called Children's Learning from Educational Television, Sesame Street and Beyond by Shalom M. Fish about some of the research into just how kids think about television and how they watch it. But for Sesame Street, my biggest recommendation, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about the production behind it, is the documentary Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street, which is on HBO Max. It's a great documentary. I watched it uh, a couple years ago at Sundance. It was very, very good. Uh, highly recommend that. For Blue's Clues, the uh, Nick Animation podcast episode featuring Angela Santamaro and Tracy Page Johnson uh, is great. And it just talks about a lot of what went into their concepting for the show, their backgrounds, the impact of the show. A lot of the things that we talked about within the episode, they elaborate on even more. And it's from uh, from the sources themselves. For the Backyardigans and for Bluey, since they're a little bit... Uh, newer i would say uh i just recommend going back and watching those shows and watching bluey like just just seeing kind of what the impact of those previous three works are on new works is always going to be great um whether you have kids or not just staying up to date on what children's programming looks like uh, because you never know how applicable that information might be able to be for you so like I mentioned at the top of the episode, we're going to be staying on this topic for the next two weeks. And next week, I'm actually going to be joined by a very, very special guest who knows a thing or two about the children's educational programming landscape. So that's going to be a very fun interview. I hope you guys are super excited for it. And I hope you tune in and let me know what you think. So I hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you'll join me again next week for another pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. Carlos King, one of the most sought-after executive producers in reality television. I am thrilled to announce Reality with the King, where we'll discuss all things reality TV. I have interviewed everyone from Nene Leakes, Teresa Judai, and Kenya Moore. Each episode, we will rehash shocking betrayals, honey. Yes! Hilarious shade! And all the drama. Reality with the King podcast is available wherever you get your podcast. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Each episode, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, talking with filmmakers, novelists, game designers, cosplayers, comic book artists, and anyone who works in the field of make-believe. I also look at the fan experience, asking, why do we suspend our disbelief? You can subscribe to Imaginary Worlds wherever you get your podcasts.